Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And a full house with me today. Aileen Ilana is here. Richard Collins is at home in Malahide. And Niall Hatch is in studio. And shortly we'll be talking to Eric Dempsey, who's out counting Brent geese. Aina, how are you? I'm great. Full of the joys of spring, even though it's not spring yet. <laughs> well, you, I, see the, I see the garlic growing <laughs> in people's garden already. Oh, yeah. Can you smell it? Well, I can smell it and see it. And it shouldn't be out till next year. What in the name of God is it doing? It's not meant to be in the Christmas turkey. Well, what is it doing? That's been saying the joys of spring. It's the mix up with the seasons. It's warmer than it might be in the soil. Although I see this week now the weather's going to become inclement and cold, so that might put sub zero temperatures. Garlic. We're told that'll put manners on the garlic. It certainly will. Nile hatches here also. Nile, have you got any garlic growing in your garden? Uh, I've got three cornered leek, which is uh, another allium. That's the genus. They're the same as as leeks and onions and all of those. It's an invasive species, but it, it tastes quite good. Not as good as wild garlic, but it's not. It's not blossoming at the moment. Hasn't growing, but we often get that. Uh, I do love the rams the wild garlic when it's that season but yes it shouldn't be around at this time of year and since Richard Collins got himself a totally wild garden he probably can't find anything can you Richard? No and to get through it is, is a bit of an ordeal now I have a secateurs uh, I feel like one of these uh, early explorers in the jungles of the Amazon <laughs> or something like that I'm half expecting to find some strange reptile confronting me but anyway it's, it's a thrill but I'm sure the neighbours are having meetings without me being present to argue that the value of their houses is probably false Falling well, as a result. May have increased, who knows? Anyway, Niall, it's Garden Bird Survey. Aina was reminding me earlier, time of year. That's right. So today, the 27th of November, this is a kickoff of the Irish Garden Bird Survey. Would you believe it's the 35th consecutive year that we've done this? It's Broadwatch Ireland's biggest citizen science survey, which is really mobilising Mooney Goes Wild listeners and people all across the country, uh, amateurs at home, to keep track of the different birds, send that data back to us. And when you get thousands of people doing this every year for 35 years, you can tell an awful lot about uh, how our birds are doing. Because over that time frame, we see winners and losers, we see the impacts of climate change, uh, we see how they're responding to food availability, to weather events, all of these things. Uh, and it's also a lot of fun to do. Uh, so it's been, been really, really brilliant uh, to see the data over the last few years and to see how many people each year are coming on and giving it a go. We got a real boost during during COVID when people were I'll bet it did yeah. absolutely people turned to, 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 to nature saw it in the guards and that's continued I'm delighted to say people are really taking part like never before the survey itself it runs for, for 13 weeks uh, so you have plenty of time to get involved and what we ask people to do is to keep track of the different species of bird that come into their garden um, each week but also the highest number of each species that they see at any one time and to do that on a weekly basis that's all very interesting but I mean if you have a robin you're not going to get six robins unless there's something weird so I mean you know it's only the flocking birds that you're going to get numbers of otherwise is there not this business of territory still or is it only the robins that you only get one of well if you have a big enough garden you may get two sometimes you might see in response to a really cold weather event like I remember when we had the beast from the east you did see some of this territorialism sometimes breaking down or perhaps becoming even stronger with the birds so hungry coming into the gardens so it's, it's actually because of surveys like this we can work out that kind of territorial behaviour so it's absolutely fascinating a few pitfalls people you know often would see on a form it's one of the benchmarks we use if you see someone put down like 12 robins or 20 robins this week in our in the garden you know that that's they made a mistake because it's not a test or, or a survey of how many times you looked out the window it's a survey of how many birds you had present at one time mm. and that's why we do it at, at this one time thing so there's no duplicate counting and it really is effective you know it's, it's a good way to do it we get lots of data but as I said it's a lot of fun and just to, to warn the listeners it becomes really addictive It can also be confusing though and I'll tell you why I say that because the tits are flocking at this time of year That's right and they're on the move around and and, and uh, often what, what people think is they have the same blue tit or maybe mm. two of them coming and going in their garden. In fact, it's often many different individuals coming, moving through your garden, moving on to the next parish, wherever it may be, all over the place. The human eye can't tell them apart. They look absolutely identical to us. So that's why we ask for that count, the, the maximum number you see at any one time. And then when you look back on that over the, over the years and over the decades, you then have a benchmark to compare. So it doesn't tell us necessarily how many birds are present. What it does is we can see population trends. Uh, are they going up? Are they going down? Are they moving, let's say, from Leinster to Connacht in response to cold weather? 
weather or something like that. Yeah, but what I want to ask you is why do the cold tits hang out with the blue tits this time of year and they don't during the breeding season? Well, during the breeding season, they have their own territories and they have their own discrete sort of places where they would nest. The blue tits would be slightly dominant over the cold tits. The cold tits are a slightly smaller bird. The blue tits are a bit bossier. Uh, so when they're nesting, they're competing for nesting sites. They all nest within cavities. It could be a nest box in your garden or a hole in a tree or in a wall. And if you're a bigger, more dominant bird, you're going to get your pick of the nest sites. Mm. But the advantage the cold tit has, it can squeeze into the tinier gaps that the blue tit and especially the grey tit can't quite get into. So that, that's when they're looking for food like caterpillars for their chicks during the summer. Then outside the breeding season, so this time Yeah, but year, all the tits, you've got all in the grey tits, the cold tits. Yeah. And then the you have blue tits all flocking tits, and it yeah. looks beautiful especially on a frosty morning or if there's been a fall of but snow and you just see these flittering around from branch to branch. Oh, 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 and they it, should, it, should be, it should be start putting out food for them now or are they still going on the berries and stuff that's there or is now because the season is starting for this bird watch counting garden bird survey is now the time to put out your feeders. I, I would definitely recommend doing that now yes and one of the questions that's on the form as well is about do you put food out for the birds in your garden if so what kind of food what size is your garden those kind of things. You don't have to put food in the garden to take part in the survey by any means, uh, but a lot of people do. Um, but then at least if we know if you put it out or not, then we can sort of extrapolate from that how many people are feeding birds in their gardens and so on. But, you know, we just were talking there about the, the cold spell that's about to come. That's when the birds really need help. So putting out food for them in your garden is a really good thing to do. You'll see those flocks of, of the tits, particularly uh, finches as well. As the cold weather hits, they move in bigger numbers into the garden out of desperation. They're hungry. And I tell you what I'm hearing a lot of lately. What's that? Come on, come on, come on. What am I hearing a lot of lately? Robin singing? No. Nope. Well, I'm hearing that all the time. I have a robin outside. No, 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 not Voices in your head? (laughs) (laughs) Starlings. Oh, yes. You can hear them in the roosts. You can. Without seeing them, it's actually a wonderful sound. And uh, that leads actually onto another survey that we're just kicking off at the moment too. We have the, the Irish Starling Murmuration Survey. We've just started that in the last couple of years and that's to keep track of those huge flocks of starlings that gather mm. together in the winter. The like big yes. wisps of smoke in the sky. Absolutely magnificent. I know we've, we've discussed them many times. Oh, we have. Before. Myself and Richard spent many a night under the, the Albert Bridge in Belfast, oh, Richard. Yes, the Albert Bridge. is not called after Albert. It's a particular uh, Prince Albert, not the Prince Albert, I but it was a wonderful experience that was inside in the city. It reminds me of what's really happening. We, half of the human population now, live in cities worldwide. The Homo sapiens ecology has changed radically. We're now almost, we're becoming a new species, different from what our ancient ancestors living in caves and so forth, hunter-gatherers were like. And the birds are doing the same. They are cashing in on us. We're destroying the environment in many ways but the opportunistic birds are moving and the garden bird survey monitors that the birds have cottoned on that we can benefit them and the whole section some are doing it some are not and it's a very interesting revolution that is taking place in the bird community worldwide I was watching the magpies in the garden yesterday put up the feeders and the tits had been hopping in and out feeding and of course some of it fell down on the table underneath and along came the magpies to eat all the stuff that had fallen out and then one of them made a lash at the feeder now obviously the magpie couldn't get at it but it shook it over and back more stuff fell out and then it went down to the table to eat it again so they've worked out if they give the thing a belt the food will fall out so not that they can get it out of the feeder but they can knock it out onto the table and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry actually but they're very smart and that's why magpies and their fellow members of the crow family are so successful because they can really turn their their beaks to anything you know if one type of food disappears they can move on to a new one they can plan ahead they can see there's no point in me trying to hover at this feed or a perch on it I'm too big I'm too clumsy but if I give it a few belts it's going to fall down on the ground and I can feed on that and uh, hats off to them for it I have to say you know I think sometimes we we humans tend to think that's nasty or sneaky um, goodness knows what the birds say about us because I think human behaviour can be a lot worse than that uh, and they're just doing what comes naturally of course the magpie doesn't care if your robins or your blue tits or your dunnocks or goldfinches they survive it's survival of the fittest and that's the way it works and that's why putting a variety of different foods into gardens makes such sense because each bird has its own particular niche its own kind of food it would exploit. So those uh, blue tits, cold tits, great tits, long-tailed tits, they love particularly peanuts. That's a great source of food for them. Never put those out loose. Put them into a wire mesh feeder. Um, they also love suet, which is uh, fat, essentially. Uh, and that works very, very well for them, too. And then you'll find that your finches, they tend to favour the seeds. Other birds will go for those, too. But finches like goldfinches, greenfinches, chaffinches, uh, they love those as well. The survey's actually showing that some of those birds that used to be very common, like the greenfinch, they really have declined. They've gone down by 47% in, over the course of the last few years in the survey. 
survey, which is really telling. They've been hit by a disease pandemic and we wouldn't have known that if mm. it wasn't for this survey. Well, listen, if you wish to take part in the Garden Bird survey, and it starts today, but there's plenty of time. It runs for 13 weeks, as Niall has said, and it's a great activity, particularly over the Christmas period for the whole family. All you've got to do is visit our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney and you'll find details of how you can participate there. Also, the Starling survey. I know they were having difficulties and problems around the Albert Bridge because of light pollution and the conservations up there were doing something to try and address that because I've brought people who were on holiday in Ireland to the Albert Bridge in Belfast just to see Belfast but also to see something different and it is a beautiful thing to do at around four o'clock on a winter's uh, afternoon. Just stand on that bridge and wait for the birds to come in. You see them coming from all directions and then they'll gather and they roost under the bridge and that's why they're there. Anyway, details on the website rte.ie forward slash money. Let's say hello to Eric Dempsey who's in South County Dublin counting Brent Geese. Eric. Hello Derek and hello team. Just listening to you talking about the, the Garden Bird Survey. Niall, I'm sure when it started 35 years ago you would never have imagined that great spotted woodpecker would be a regular feature of people's gardens. Um, I have two great spotted woodpeckers coming into our feeders at the moment, a male and a female. And uh, last summer, we had the male bringing in three juveniles. So I'm sure that is a big difference. I know you're saying, you know, green finches have gone down, but has there anything increased or anything else that's new coming into the garden bird surveys I know I'm meant to be talking about Brent Geese but I'm fascinated talking about great spotted woodpeckers at the yeah, moment but before he answers that you should say that you live in County Wicklow Eric and not in Dublin I'm in County Wicklow just, just I should say that yes, yes you're right Eric it's seeing those changes for good or bad it's, it's from you know an academic point of view is absolutely fascinating but as a bird watcher and a bird enthusiast seeing winners like the great spotted woodpecker gradually colonising Ireland it's, it's really been fascinating so uh, through the Irish Garden Bird Survey over the last 10 years or so, we've seen an increasing number of records of great spotted woodpeckers in County Wicklow and also in County Down, as it happens. Uh, but then what we're seeing now in the last five or five or six years, we're seeing neighbouring counties where it's spreading. So they are quite, to quite a bit of Dublin now. We're seeing quite a lot, a lot of reports from Carlow, particularly into Kilkenny. But now we're getting records from counties all over the country. And I predict this winter it'll be an even more interesting one. Uh, we're also seeing some other winners as well. So with the decline of the green finch, what the survey has shown is there's been an increase in another type of finch called the linnet coming into gardens and the theory is it's just a working theory at the moment but that the green finches would be more dominant than the linnets they sort of crowd them out keep them away from the gardens nature abhors a vacuum and when the green finches have disappearing because of this disease that's been affecting them. It seems that the linnets in some areas of Ireland at least have been able to exploit that and move into gardens very rapidly. So when you plot these on a graph you see that the graphs almost match perfectly. You see the green finch going down and the linnet increasing. And we wouldn't know that without all the people taking part in the survey. One thing I'm hoping we'll see, because we haven't had this on the survey now for several years, wax wings. I'm hoping we have a wax wing winter this year. It looks good so far but we'll have to see. These eruptive visitors we were speaking about in the programme there last week uh, and uh, I'm really hoping that we might see a good few of those over the course of the 13 weeks of the survey too. And with these northern winds, we should start seeing red wings and field fairs as well coming into people's gardens because um, with those cold, bitter winds coming from the north, birds start arriving, moving west and, and landing into Ireland. So it's, uh, it's an, exciting, an exciting project and it is fascinating that you can actually see real differences just by people observing what they're seeing in their garden. It's a, it's a truly valuable uh, survey, uh, Noel, no question. But of course, I'm, I'm in South County Dublin. Talk, I'm meant to be talking about Brent Keys, but I get into great but at woodpeckers I can't help myself Derek I am part of a team that's out looking at Brent geese you know throughout the whole winter and we have several species of geese that occur in Ireland so we have you know the, the, the brownish ones and the, the most familiar might be the Greenland white fronted goose which is down in uh, Wexford that's where the main population is we have grey lag geese which is the ancestor of the farmyard goose and uh, we get those along the east coast and in, in the midland bogs and in some areas of of north and then pink footed geese as well and they're a small petite almost like a, a coffee coloured you know latte coloured and they are occurring now in slightly larger numbers particularly along the northeast coast places like Lurgan Green in County Louth you can get up to a hundred pink footed geese there most winters and that's a large increase it might reflect the success of these birds across Europe and into northern Europe and then we have the sort of black and white birds and barnacle geese up at Lissadell, they're the lovely crisp black and white guys with a white face in 
parks and in wildfowl collections you get the Canada goose which is the, the tall one with the white chin strap and then the Brent geese which is the one I've been looking at over the last few years and the Brent geese are the real coastal birds you won't find Brent geese out in boglands or on lakes in the Midlands. They are truly a coastal species. And these breed up in Arctic Canada and start arriving back in Ireland as early as the beginning of September. Now, it all depends on how successful their breeding is. If they've had a very poor breeding season, they will come back early as soon as they've molted their feathers. If they've had a successful season, it's often a little bit later. I saw my first Brent uh, around the end of September but they're truly in in big big numbers now and everybody's fascinated with the Brent geese because they've become so familiar to urban dwellers like I've done some work in Dungarvan and you know there's a pitch and put course at Dungarvan and it's full of Brent geese feeding away and people just ignore them they're just part and parcel of of you know Dungarvan town and in Dublin city I mean seriously you go to football pitches you go to tiny little greens in the middle of of suburbia and there's flocks of Brent geese feeding on the grass in front of you and they have no fear whatsoever and when you think about it these are truly wild geese that have flown the Atlantic Ocean that have bred in Arctic Canada and here they are feeding on football pitches, on greens and on the coastal grasses along our coasts. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to witness. What is a goose, Eric? Why is a goose not a swan? <laughs> That's a good question and Richard is probably listening to me so I have to be very careful. I mean... The, the larger birds are swans. There's about, I think, seven species of swan in the world. So there's not many swans. And they usually have these long necks, big bodies, and they are related to geese. If you can imagine then that goose, a goose is a slightly smaller first cousin of the swan. Shorter neck, a little bit stockier. And then you have ducks, of course, and they all form a collective called wildfowl. Now, Richard, you might have a zoological or a physiological reason. What's the answer to that? Well, there isn't a simple answer, I think. Now, if you look at ungulates, hoofed animals, you have the very long-necked ones, the giraffes, say, and then you have large antelope and things, and then you get down to cattle and down to sheep and so on. Now, parallel, the swans are the giraffe uh, branch of the wildfowl, anatidae. The geese are more the like the cattle and sheep, uh, that sort of thing. And then the ducks at the bottom of the, the spile, they are more like... Um, small animals that run around the place like hares and rabbits and things of that size. So you've got this kind of division. Now, in evolutionary terms, apparently the swan is thought to have been the first in. A swan-like creature was first in and from him comes the goose. The swan lives in the water, loses a long neck, upends mostly. That's his kind of niche. He's able to stretch down a metre and a half to pull up water weeds. The goose is on the land and he's tearing up grasses and things like that, whereas the duck has become much more adventurous and ducks will, some ducks will be almost totally carnivorous, but they mix things. They are much more uh, liberal in their in their eating habits. So I think the intriguing thing, Eric, uh, 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 that you talk about the short grasses of your pitch and put courses and things like that, I'm almost intrigued by that because Brent geese don't like long grass. They don't like, we have a field out here in front of me which has uh, very interesting cattle on it, Moiler uh, cattle, uh, ancient Irish herd, and it's not cropped enough for Brent geese to bother coming in. Whereas the golf course is quite near, you'll have the Brent geese on the golf course. But back when they were evolved, there was no such short grasses like that, apart from Macair. Perhaps they fed a bit on Macair, but they are. we have created an environment that has suited them in a strange way. Just why they won't eat longer grass intrigues me in a way that's one of the mysteries of, of um, Brent geese for me anyway I, I fully agree and you know when they, they arrive first um, 
um, they, they will feed on the coastal, the eelgrass, which, you know, is found along the coastal marshes and the, the coastal wetlands. But the Brent geese is quite successful at the moment. It, the, the numbers are rising. And I, I've just been looking at, at Brent this morning. And it's wonderful to see so many young birds back with the adults. So the adults will bring the young birds back, show them the ropes, show them where to go for, for feeding so that when they return, they know where to go. Last winter, there was hardly any young birds around, hardly any in with the flocks. This year, it looks like they've had a very good breeding season and we can tell the young ones in that they have pale bars uh, on their, their wing coverts. It's like pale barring on their backs. So you can tell an adult instantly from a young bird. So it looks like they've had a very good breeding season. And last winter, the, the geese didn't really move out onto the football pitches until a little later. You know, we didn't really begin to see big movements of the geese out onto the other feeding resources until probably late December. And was purely and simply because they had enough eelgrass to, to, to feed on for that size of that population. But this year, they're already coming back onto the football pitches. And what happens is they come onto the place like the Bull Island, they'll feed on the eelgrass there, and because there's a big population of them, that resource begins to get used up. So they've learned how to go and seek food elsewhere. They've done very well, Eric. Yeah, you know, when I was got interested in wildlife first back in the 1960s, there was great worry about Brent geese. Brent geese, there was about 6,000 of them coming to Ireland. And it looked as though they were on the way out. And we had all kinds of things here. We had lovely flocks of scoter out there and red-breasted merganser. We had red-throated divers and some great northern divers, great crested creep. All that along the coast here between where I am and Port Marnock. Now, there isn't one of those birds to be had but the goose the grand goose is thriving the very one we thought that was most vulnerable is the one that has done best it is an extraordinary turn of events i think and i i think it's at its adaptation to to seek food at places like uh, you know greens inside housing estates pitch and put courses golf courses football pitches i think that adaptation has really paid off for the goose but I'm told that the grass that they eat on these football pitches isn't as nutritional as the eelgrass that they would eat along the coast and therefore they are leaving Ireland a little bit later because they haven't managed to build up enough fat reserves for their return migration so it's a bit like you know, takeaway, but it isn't as nutritional as what your mother would have made for you at home. Apparently, the timings of the Brent geese are changing ever so slightly due to the fact that they, the quality of the food that they get off the football pitches and off the put, pitch and put courses aren't as good as the likes of eelgrass that they would get along the coast. So they have sort of traded that off, but it's a very successful trade-off. Of course, the other thing that we have to consider is that these birds, we, we get pale-bellied brankies. Um, Europe gets dark-bellied brankies, which come from Siberia. If our birds return and they have a short window for, for nesting and for breeding, if anything is altering the Arctic Circle where these birds breed with climate change, it could mean that they will have many years of unsuccessful breeding. So, you know, when I talk about climate change, I don't talk about polar bears. I talk about Brent geese. I talk about blue tits. I talk about cuckoos, birds that we can all relate to. So to see such a good number of young birds gives me heart that, you know, the population is safe going forward for the next few years. But all it takes is for several years of poor breeding for the populations to decline. Thankfully, Brent geese have a long life. You know, they can live for 20, 25 years, which is a good thing. They can accept one or two bad breeding seasons, but they have more ahead of them, whereas small-lived birds only have one or two years and they, they got to breed, you've got to reproduce, or that's it. Eric, do we know what they eat when they go back to the Arctic? I mean, they have the takeaways here, the football pitches, or they have the eelgrass. But, I mean, they're, they're, they're actually inland there, are they? They're not on yeah, the Yeah, but they're on the... They're on the tundras and there's lots yeah. and lots of food there. There's lots of, of grazing for them up, up in the tundras. So, you know, they nest up in the, 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 the tundra areas where there's those short grass that they can feed on. And then if you, if you know that 
all geese and ducks and swans, when they, um, they're finished breeding, they will molt all their flight feathers so they become flightless for a period of time. And in the tundra areas, there's beautiful wide open lakes uh, that these birds can move onto so that there is no pressure from predators. So they, they are perfectly adapted to a life in the, in the tundra areas. I mean, they must be seeing so they do so well. But I was just wondering, it's not just grass. Do they eat other plants as well? Do they eat oh, wood? All sorts. Yeah, yeah. They, they're vegetarian. It's just like when they're here, it's uh, lovely prime football pitch grass that they, they like uh, in the latter half of the winter. You know, it provides them with enough nutrients to, to get them through the winter. Why but of course, they'll eat a whole range of other food once they, once they go up into the tundras. Mind you, it's, it's very hard to digest grass. So, did, wasn't it? I think David Cabot with um, the barnacle geese reckoned that they did a dropping every seven minutes. It kind of makes the football pitches rather skiddy if you have a whole <laughs> flock of Brent geese doing droppings every. Yeah, but it's good fertilizer. Good fertilizer for the grass. Uh, although I do know that some some of the football you know pitches, um, some of them, the players are not happy that Brent geese feed. But when you explain the migration of them and the journeys they make to get here to poo on your on your football pitch, uh, I think people walk away with a slightly different perspective on the Brent. Eric, whenever I watch Brent geese around Dublin coast, along the North Wicklow coast or elsewhere in Ireland, I'm always struck by just how far they've travelled to come to us and what part of the world they're connecting us to. It's a part of the world that for our ancestors particularly, they would have known nothing about. This far north part of Nunavut in Canada, with many of our Brent geese particularly coming to us from a place called Baffin Island, which is the fifth largest island in the world, but still a very little known place. We normally think of geese as being very wary um, to, to go on a wild goose chase, to do something that's futile. But the thing that always strikes me about the Brent geese here is how tame they are because they really don't fear people that much. They're sort of, if you don't bother them and get too close, they'll sort of go about their business. That's because, I suppose, that where they nest, they're relatively free from predators. They do meet some Inuit hunters from time to time, but apart from that, they rarely encounter humans. They rarely encounter other predators as well. There's a few Arctic foxes and um, things like that. You can, might get gerfalcons falcons occasionally that might, uh, might, might bother them. But apart from that, they're are far fewer predators than they would be for most other geese and because they're so hardy they have these small little bills they're kind of compact birds they're able to retain more body heat they do well in in very cold conditions However, one of the things that I fear with climate change, uh, competitors may be able to get a toehold in those breeding grounds and crowd them out. We're already starting to see that happening in Greenland with the Greenland white-fronted goose and uh, the Canada goose, which is more dominant, is starting to invade Greenland and to breed among them and reduce the breeding success of those geese. And you know, if, time, if climate change continues as it is, I'd have fears that perhaps more of these competitor geese, the stronger, more dominant ones, would be able to force these brent out or at least reduce the food supply for their chicks and fewer would survive. And it might allow other predators to, to colonise that area as well if the summers uh, become uh, warmer and, and the winters become less harsh and allow them to survive. Um, so, you know, I think it's great to see them doing well, but that shows the, the importance of this kind of survey work because that's how we'll first spot these changes. It's in the wintering populations here in Ireland rather than in the breeding grounds in northern Canada where they're spread over vast areas and counting them would be almost impossible. I fully agree with you, uh, Noel. I think, you know, the climate change and the impact it will have on these kind of species, we are really only guessing at the moment. We are only sort of trying to imagine what might happen. And this is why it's so important. You know, we, we spoke earlier about the Garden Board Survey. The Garden Board Survey really does give an indication of a population change or the status of birds that would be normally considered garden birds. And it's the same with, you know, studies of Brent and other species. It really gives you an indication of what is happening elsewhere as opposed to what's happening on our doorstep. Conservation isn't just about, you know, conserving them on their wintering grounds. It's conserving species that are on their migration routes, also on their breeding grounds. And I can see Although I've never been up to that part of Canada, I can see that the Brent geese have had a very successful breeding season this season just by watching them on the wintering grounds. And these are the kind of valuable bits of information that piece together how the Brent are doing. And, you know, population declines, if we see a massive drop in young birds coming back year after year, something is going on. Birds, I've always said, birds are great indicators of change in the environment. You know, they're the first things that often show that something has changed. You know, have wings will fly. You know, I, you know, if, if oak trees, you know, start 
missing their, their leafing time by a couple of weeks, you know, it's more subtle. You don't see it and an oak tree can't get up and walk away. Birds just fly. They, they leave areas. They show instantly, very quickly, that something has changed. And this is what we're always looking for. Will we have a big number of young birds coming back? And if several winters occur where there are no young birds coming back, then we know something really has happened in their breeding grounds. And as you say, birds like Canada geese would pose a major threat for these birds if they start moving into their breeding grounds. There's one other lovely thing I would say about the Brent, and, and you talked about how tame they are because they probably haven't encountered people before. They're protected as well. If Brent geese were being shot at in Ireland, they would be far more wary. Birds learn that they have nothing to fear from us if we show them that there's nothing to fear from us. And, you know, Brent are one of those birds that trust us. And it's a wonderful thing to have trust from a wild bird. You know, I've I've spoken to so many people in housing estates and all around Dublin particularly, because that's the, the area that I, I, I'm working on. And everybody welcomes the geese. There isn't a single person you meet that goes, oh, those bloody Brent geese. Everybody's going, oh, yeah, they're fantastic. And, oh, and, and you know, you set up a telescope and you let people look at a Brent goose up close and you tell them the story of their journeys. And do you know something? People are interested. You know, you just have to flick that switch and people are interested. And I think that the people of Dublin are welcoming of the Brent geese every year. It's, it's part of who we are now. And we're one of the only capital cities in Europe that has truly wild geese in our suburbs. Fantastic stuff. Eric, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Derek. Details, as always, on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, let's move on. When I say the word fungi, what comes to mind? Do you picture button mushrooms and chanterelles, or do you think death caps and toadstools? Whatever it is, they are just a handful of maybe millions. This kingdom of organisms range from the earth stars and the puffballs, the corals and the elf cups, to the slippery jacks and the stinkhorns, the dead man's fingers and the destroying angels. It's a world that is truly fascinating and we're going to hear from a man now who has documented hundreds of species in just one place. The national treasure that is Killarney National Park. Louis O'Toole is the author of Fungi of Killarney National Park. It's just hot off the presses and Aina spoke with him earlier. Hello, Aina. I'm very well. How are you? Asher, I'm great. And Asher, I am I'm delighted with your book. It's the one book that's missing off my bookshelves. I have all sorts of books on plants and on trees and on birds and on bees. But to get a book like this on fungi, it's like Christmas has come early. I am delighted with it, Louis. You must be charmed with it as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's a book that reflects the diversity of, of the incredible diversity of fungi that, that exists within the Killarney National Park. Uh, it's, it's taken me many years to complete it, if complete, uh, if complete it, it is, but as, uh, it could never be completed in a lot of ways, I guess. You know, there are two million different fungi in the world, they say, or some people say 11 million uh, different types of fungi. So uh, the book the book shows uh, about 500 species. Um, so there's a long way to go. I see you call it the fungi of Killarney National Park. You, you, you didn't go down the road of mushrooms and toadstools because they were the old fashioned names in English for these things. And of course, originally, I'm sure you know, the mushrooms were what edible ones were called and the toadstools were what the poisonous ones were called. And of course, there's no scientific basis for this at all. These words don't really mean anything scientifically. So you're very wise just to call it the fungi of Killarney National Park and to keep well away from whether they're edible or not. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think you've hit it right on the button there. Um, the to- toadstool is, is generally given to those fungi that are 
that are not edible, sorry, but not necessarily poisonous at the same time. And, and the name mushroom would uh, refer mainly to the possibly the edible, uh, more edible type of mushroom. But the name mushroom actually um, belongs to the, the, the group of, of fungi uh, that's called agaricus. The, the actual name mushroom uh, is, has become uh, more used generically, I guess. But uh, really, it just belongs to that particular group. So fungi, I think, is probably the most uh, all-round, is the best all-round name to, to use. You have a beautiful book of fungi. You must have spent a whole lifetime doing them. When people who don't know much about this think about it, do you think of, I don't know, the ones you buy in the shop? They might be white on the top and brown on the bottom or pink on the bottom. And they might be, you might get brown mushrooms if you're being very swanky. But your book has every colour under the sun. There isn't just white ones, there's black ones, there's blue ones, there's wonderful red ones. And I used to think that at least there were all the colours, but they weren't green. But you have a green one as well. Well, it's olive green and it's the top of the stinkhorn. But the whole spectrum of colours are to be found in these fungi. That must have been great, getting all of these colours as magnificently as you have in the photographs. It, it, it is stunning, isn't it? The the, the myriads of, of different species that are there. And I think that that's the thing that more attracted me than anything else, the, the, the sheer diversity of, of fungi that are there. Did it never rain in Killarney? I mean, there's wonderful light in all of these. Did you bring lights with you to illuminate them? How did you manage to get your camera underneath to get the gills? Because in so many instances, when you see other people's pictures, it's only the top, it's only the cap. And so much more information about a particular fungus is known when you can see the underside, when you can see the gills when you can see whether it even has gills or other forms or like of, of things underneath it for spores. How did you manage to get them so beautifully lit? Did you only go on the two good days in the year when the sun shone? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I do remember many days taking photos of mushrooms uh, with a brolly up over me. <laughs> it was, and, and it was so dark that my, my shutter speeds were down to 10 seconds or something like that, you know. But uh, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. Um, I, I, did, I did strive to uh, photograph. It was something that I, I wanted to do was, was to show the actual gills as well uh, as much as I could um, in the book. Uh, I, I felt that was very important because uh, I know I've, I've plenty of books uh, of, of, of fungi that don't show the gills and, 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 and the gills are, you know, as far as identification is concerned and, and so on, are very important. Um, yeah, I know I had a little trick of mine, uh, which I use was a small little mirror. Um, and that's mainly how I got my, uh, my uh, underside uh, photos. <laughs> so that was it. And what I love as well, something that you never get in any other book ever, is the bit at the back where you have the slime moulds. And the slime moulds have lovely names. There's dog's vomit slime, which I was afraid to even look at the picture in case I got sick. But in actual fact, it looks quite nice and white. It doesn't look like dog's vomit at all. You have scrambled egg slime. Now, that does look like scrambled eggs, all right, nice and yellow. And there are others, there's tapioca slime mould and the false puffball, which is not actually a fungus at all. It's one of these other slime moulds. And there's the red raspberry slime. You never get pictures of these anywhere in any book. So to to get those, and they're very much here today and gone tomorrow and they, they actually can move. <laughs> they climb up on trees and do all kinds of things. They're amazing sorts of living forms. And you have several pages of the slime moulds. So they were a wonderful addition to put in. So hopefully now Everybody will be well up in all of these stink horns and slippery jacks and dead men's fingers and destroying angels. All of these wonderful names for, for, for the fungi of Killarney National Park. And indeed, most of these fungi can be found in other parts of the country as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Aren't the names great? <laughs> that was one of the things that, that attracted me a lot, actually, these mad names. But there you go. Thank you again, Louis. Thank you very much. Uh, lovely to talk to you. And more details of Louis's book can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Time now to say hello to Terry Flanagan, who's at his home in Dublin 15, and he's gone out 
looking for bats again, Terry. You're obsessed with bats. Yeah, you can say that, all right, Terry. I can tell you, winter's upon us because all those dark nights, the lots of rain, and we had the first touch of frost over the weekend. And that all means that our bats are well and truly tucked up nice and mm-hmm. warm in hibernation for the winter. People may not realise it, but bats are very common in Ireland and quite a lot of research on bats is undertaken here. But what do bat biologists do during the winter when there are no bats about to study? That's something I wondered about and I recently travelled to Slane in County Meath to meet up with Dr Neve Roach from Bat Conservation Ireland to find out more about the biology of bats and also what research she will be doing over the next few months. Now, Terry, will we go outside and I'll show you where my bats are likely to be? Okay. Hardly be here at this time of the year, I don't think, but... Well, they probably won't be active. Yeah. So we're moved out into the backyard. God, you don't have to go far from your home to your workplace, do you? Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) Uh, There's plenty of bats around here, you know, because we have good habitat for them. You know, there's uh, plenty of tree lines and... Plenty of woodland. Bits of woodland and and farmland Good hedgerow connectivity around the place. So Now, this yeah. time of the year, the bats, they'll be hibernating. Now, mm-hmm. we'll come to hibernation in a moment. I know we've done a fair bit on that when we did our nature nights. But tell me a little bit about the biology of the bat. They're mammals. So that means that they give birth to live young and they feed their babies milk. And they're generally warm-blooded, like ourselves. Um, it's, it's very uncommon too in the sense that we, we think of them as being quite rare but a quarter of all Irish mammal species are actually bats yeah we, we, there's a good diversity of bats in Ireland yeah there's mm. nine species so it's quite a quite a sizable amount of the kind of diversity of mammals in Ireland are and, and these they, bats they don't look like the normal mammal first of all they can fly and secondly well a lot of people would say they look quite ugly well I'd have to disagree with them there, of course. <laughs> I'm quite fond of a bat myself. Yeah. Their wings do look quite like a human hand, actually, because, uh, you know, they have basically got wings uh, that basically are like a human hand and arm. And except for the digits, the fingers, they're really stretched out and there's skin between them. And there's mm. also skin between the arm of the bat and its little finger, if you imagine, and the whole body of the bat. So that forms the wing membrane. The um, wing is really formed from the hand, whereas yeah. in the bird, the wing is formed from the whole arm, so to speak. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, yeah, the order that bats are in is called chiroptera, and that actually means hand wing, <laughs> because it reflects, you know, exactly how a bat's wing looks very like a, a human hand and arm. What people think of when they think of the bats most commonly is this echolocation. I've mm. often heard it referred to as being... Bats being able to see with their ears and able to do it in 3D. Is that a good description? That's a very good description. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no such thing as a blind bat. Mm. All bats can see and they can. Some of them can see quite well in dim light, but they do tend to use echolocation. And that is their main mode of getting from A to B and avoiding all the obstacles like tree branches and leaves. Mm. So they make these high pitched squeaks. And then they listen for the echoes that bounce so, off. So they them. send them out yes, and hope for them to bounce off something to come back. Yes, and then they can tell how far away something is, what size it is. They might even be able to tell things like texture, all sorts of things uh, based on their echolocation. Uh, yeah, but that's fine if, if it's a wall or something like that. But mm-hmm. they also use it to catch prey. Yes, yes, yeah. Then so they, the prey would be something like a moth. Yep. But as they send this sound yeah. out and it bounces off the moth, the moth is also moving. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's how, a, it's, does, how does the bat compensate for that? Well, it's a very refined system. So um, when bats are actually flying around and looking for insects and avoiding obstacles, they're making sounds about maybe six to 16 little squeaking sounds every second. Right. And then when they're actually when they see a, a moth, maybe or some kind of insect that they want to eat, They'll actually be making pulses, maybe 50 to 200 pulses per second wow. in order to be able to, you know, zone in and catch that insect. And they must be very successful at this. Extremely successful. I mean, you know, they're they're long lived animals, too, mm. you know, so they, you know, they can live maybe 10 years. The lo- most long lived bat that's ever been found is over 41 years old. So 
Yeah, very unusual. I, I, well, I, the reason why I was thinking they must be successful because the figure that's often bandied about is that they take about 3,000 midge or mosquitoes per night. Yes, yeah. I mean, they, they would probably eat their own body weight anyway in, in insects. So, mm. you know, they're, so long as the insects are there and available for them, they'll, yeah, they will certainly consume them. So they must have a very high body metabolism then. Yes, because it's a very energetically expensive thing to do to be flying mm. t- as a warm-blooded mammal. And also even echolocation itself is quite a high energy kind of high cost activity. Uh, so they kind of compensate for that a little bit because when they're flying, they'll actually make a squeak as they're exhaling. So it's kind of on the upstroke of their wing beat. So normally their echolocations come with each wing beat. So as we said earlier, they're now in hibernation. Yeah. When bats go into hibernation, do the different species go to different places? The big problem in Ireland is we don't know a whole lot about where bats go to hibernate. Right. So in other parts of Europe and even in Britain, if you go into a cave system, you'd probably come across lots of different species of bat hibernating, maybe in you know large numbers at times. Here... We really only have one bat species that we get hibernating, obviously, in caves and cellars, and that's called the lesser horseshoe bat, and it's found over the west of Ireland only. In the autumn time, you might get a lot of activity around some caves. It's called swarming, and it seems to be to do with mating. So some bat species, uh, natterer's bat, dobenton's bat, would be found swarming at caves. And we kind of assume that they mate and probably hibernate there, but it's in crevices Mm. And we can't see them now. So the common species, we really don't know a whole lot about where they go. So I suspect that we have pipistrelles hibernating in my roof space, actually, Just right, here be- above right us. beside us. Mm-hmm. The reason I suspect that is because in, in October, a couple of years ago, we had a little bat visit us down in our stove in our sitting room. And after I'd given him a little bit of water and made sure he was OK, released him that dusk. And actually here where we're standing now Mm -hmm. and he was hale and hearty, absolutely fine. And he flew straight up to our roof. Uh, And I'll just shine the torch and show you now because it's dark, Terry, so you probably can't see it otherwise. So you can see there's lead flashing around the the chimney of my roof. And so he actually crawled in and you wouldn't even see that there's a space there. But they don't make a space now with their teeth. They don't chew their way in. There must have been a tiny crevice. Because they can get into absolutely tiny crevices. Tiny crevices, yeah. But not by chewing their way in because they don't have the right teeth. Just an opening. Just once an opening is there, Mm. they can use it. But it it only needs to be like one centimetre by two centimetres in size for a little pipistrelle to get in. So he went in there into the lead flashing. So perhaps it's between the slates and the insulation And, you know, maybe that was more of a transitional roost, which would be used kind of between kind of the main summer period and the winter hibernation. Or maybe they're actually hibernating in there. It's sufficiently cool for them. Yeah. Um, Do you think, do they hibernate and roost in the same location? Generally speaking, we don't think so. What they're looking for in the summertime is warmth, usually. They're looking for a place, especially the females, they're looking for a place that stays really warm and it increases the chances of their baby surviving. So they're looking for warmth. What they're looking for in the wintertime is different because they don't want to be using energy. They want to go, they want all of their body processes to slow right down Mm. and they want to be cool because that helps them save energy for the long winter uh, when there's not much to eat. So in the winter, when they're in their hibernation site, is it a case then that it may become too hot or too cold for them? What they're doing is they're probably trying to find a place that is just right. You know, it's like a Goldilocks kind of situation. Yeah. So they want somewhere that's not too cold, not too warm. They may go deep into tree crevices. And then if the weather is does get very cold, they may go somewhere else where the temperature is more stable, maybe more in crevices in ruins or something like that or underground sites underground sites. They're used an awful lot in other countries because they stay at such a constant temperature yeah you know do they wake up or have you ever come across a a bat in the middle of winter yeah 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 people will actually we you know we often get you know people getting in touch with us saying i saw a bat you know when it was the middle of winter usually it's um you know the weather takes it a warmer turn uh, and so they come out possibly it's to drink because one of the kind of 
things that they probably run out of or become or, you know, is problematic for hibernation is becoming dehydrated. So they may come out to drink, but they may also come out for a little feed because if the weather takes a warmer spell, uh, you might get a few insects flying around. What initiates hibernation in the first place? Is it is it the cold or is it a lack of insects? Well, it's probably some combination of the two. Mm. You know, they're probably taking their cue from the temperature, but also when the temperature goes down, you also get fewer flying insects. So there's less available. And do they ever run out of, of energy during hibernation? Yes, it definitely is a risk. I mean, especially for youngsters in their first year, there would be quite a high fatality rate, Mm. we think. At the end of the summer, they're all basically trying to eat as much as possible to build up the body fat that they can then slowly burn over the winter and survive until the weather warms up again in the springtime. But, you know, if they keep waking up, if there's a lot of warm spells or if they get a lot of disturbed a lot, they do use up more energy waking up and becoming active and you know there's a risk that they won't survive the winter and and what about their metabolism how does that change while they're hibernating earlier on there i mentioned that you know it's a very high uh, energy cost uh, flight and echolocation so normally they have a very fast metabolic rate in the winter time then that slows right down so if you see a bat in hibernation to all intents and purposes it looks like it's dead and it actually if you touched it it would feel cold because on, even though they're warm-blooded, basically they let their body temperature drop right down to the same as the sort of ambient air. Their blood is only pumping around the vital organs, and at that it's only pumping a few times a minute. They're hardly breathing at all. And actually, if you saw a bat in hibernation in a damp place, like a cave or something, you might it looks kind of silvery sometimes because it's covered in condensation because it's so still. Mm. And so basically the whole idea, a whole point of this is to not have to use use energy in this time of year when there's very little to eat and then what wakes them up so it's probably these slight changes in temperature and then what you'll get is maybe one or two individuals will become a little bit more active they might be out just for a short while when you say they might be yeah. out just for a short while yeah. you mean they, they will they leave might, yeah they will leave the area where they're hibernating yeah and then they'll come back. Yeah, potentially. So it's a kind of a, a, a gradual yes. reawakening rather yes. than up you go and off to work, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, because people often say, oh, what happens when they all go into hibernation? Do they all, like, is it one evening? They All the bats have decided this is the night we go into hibernation, but it doesn't really, the same, it's the same for the start and the end of hibernation. There's mm. no one specific trigger. It's a gradual thing. More and more bats will gradually become active for a longer and longer period as the weather warms up. The last time I was talking to you, you were undertaking a study, bats and bugs. How has that been going? Yeah, so we actually wrapped up there in April with our, we launched uh, two nice animations, basically sort of highlighting some of the, some of the results of the project. So yeah, we were really pleased. We had over 120 samples from all around the country where people elected to go into their bat roosts and um, use safely pick up bat droppings and send them to the lab in UCD. Bat poop. Bat poop, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an awful lot of information in bat poop. Well, tell us, <laughs> tell us then some of that information. What our, the researchers in UCD did then, they basically analysed the bat poo for DNA and they figured out what bat species was making it and also what the bats had been eating. Mm-hmm. So they found a lot of inform, uh, information. First of all, there were seven bat species that people had picked up the poo from. We found actually that a lot of them were mixed roosts, so where people sometimes thought they had just one species. In actual fact, from the poo, we realised there was maybe two or three species all in the same place. Uh, so that was an interesting finding. And what about the food that they were feeding on? 50% of the droppings had crane flies in them, which was a very interesting finding. Uh, crane flies, your listeners may know, are also called daddy long legs. And where they're of interest as a kind of a, a problematic insect is because, you know, they lay their eggs on soil and those eggs turn into leather jackets, mm-hmm. which are a major pest of winter barley. And also any gardeners will know them as a, a pain. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, gardeners yeah. and farmers would be happy for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really it was really interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of information. James Nolan in UCD found out he also he looked he looked at some of the differences between, say, for example, soprano pipistrels in one area where they were beside a lake that was slightly polluted and then another area where they were beside a lake that had 
fairly pristine water and found that actually they were eating insects that you'd associate with polluted water mm. and in the pristine area they're eating a diversity of insects that would be you know like you know your mayfly and stonefly that you would get in more pristine water and he suggested that this could be also used as a way to indicate what water quality and habitat quality is like in an area too so there's other uses yeah, I was you know, say, something it, like that it's amazing the mm. information that you yeah. can glean from a, a, a research project like that where you're literally just collecting bat poop yeah. and sending it into a lab yeah. and just to check in to see what's in the bat poop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's an awful lot of work now being done on things like eDNA, environmental DNA, you know, where people just take a sample of water from a stream mm. and find out what might be living there, you know. So um, it's not just being outdoors during the summer. Yeah. There's a lot of work done an indoors an in the winter. An awful lot is done in the winter, yeah, yeah. And more details, as always, can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Moody. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Aina Nilana, Niall Hatch, Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Max Falvey and our researcher is Michelle Brown. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.